Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health in the community, brought to you by the Mental Health Foundation and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. What we're trying to do is share new ideas from around the world, addressing some of today's most pressing mental health challenges. I'll be talking to a number of Churchill Fellows who between 2016 and 2019 were funded to visit some of the world's best projects in this field and to bring fresh approaches for the UK. We are continuing our theme of trauma and adversity, this time in the second of our episodes looking at how organisations can be structured so as to deliver trauma-informed care. I'm joined now by clinical psychologist Dr Karen Treisman, who's been studying how organisations can become more trauma-informed, and by forensic psychologist Dan Johnson. Um, Karen, first of all, what do we mean by trauma-informed? We were just talking about that. That is a big question. Um, So I suppose, firstly, in the Winston Churchill Fellowship, I looked at adversity, trauma and culturally informed, infused and responsive. So I'll give you a bit of sense of why I chose those terms because it makes sense. In essence, for me, everyone will have different definitions. Trauma informed is about having a awareness, a knowledge, a realization about trauma and the different types of trauma. So relational trauma, intergenerational trauma, community trauma, lots of those different types of trauma and how they can impact and influence individuals, families, societies, organisations and really looking at how our interventions and organisations can take what we know about trauma and infuse that in how we interact with people differently. And you are working with organisations to get them more thinking along those lines. How how do you do it in practice? Yes, I'm currently consulting over 90 organisations internationally, um, some of those in a very uh, intense way and some of those in much more of a helping some of the thinking ways. Um, And that looks really different in different organisations. So that includes things from um, delivering training, um, offering reflective practice and supervision, but also looking at specific organisational areas. For example, looking at uh, recruitment and induction and how can you make that more trauma-informed or looking at the physical environment and the building. And sometimes it's specific practice. So, for example, in a local authority, looking at how do we support when we transition a child from foster care to adoption in a more trauma-informed way or how can I support the police when they're doing an interview post-sexual assault to do that in a more trauma-informed way. So there's lots of different kind of spheres and facets within that. Okay, well, let's move it on a bit further, Dan, and first principles, if you like. When we talk about children in residential and secure care and the traumas they face, what are we talking about? Where are they living and how did they arrive there? Yeah, uh, residential care and secure care, there's, there's lots of different versions of it, but essentially it's, it's kind of complete 24-hour wraparound care for children. And those children that are there are there for lots of different reasons. In fact, it's hard to think of a more mixed or varied group of kids, to be honest. The, the themes, though, are some children are there because their families or their carers weren't able to, to care for them, uh, or because the behaviours of those children, for numerous different reasons, couldn't be cared for by the family that was... The, that was trying to that. Um, to be honest, though, often it's seen as kind of a last uh, last approach for children, and hopefully you'd go, go through foster care or different types of care before that. Um, secure care is definitely the end of the, 
of the continuum for care for children. And where does trauma-informed thinking come into this? What are the principles behind it? So the principles of trauma-informed care, again, are debated and defined by many different people. But the one I think I like personally is the American, I don't know how you pronounce it, but SAMHSA or SAMHSA, and they talk about four R's. So the brief version of that is the first one would be to realize the presence of trauma, the prevalence of it. So a, a tangible example of that might be you look at the people you look after and try and get some measure of this experience of them. The second would be to recognize the impact of that trauma. So again, a concrete example might be asking the people who work in there or, or who are served by that project what impact that's had on them, what symptoms they've got, how that's affected their life. The fourth R is to respond to that. So can we actually do something about it? The obvious obviously example of that would be therapy, but it could be many, many other things, you know, how, how they move from tr foster care to adoption, all those kind of things. Um, and the fourth would be to resist re-traumatization. So re-traumatization has lots of, again, it's a gray area, but we don't mirror or replicate those experiences that those children have had. Um, there's a fifth R that the folk in Scotland have been talking about, which is relationships. And, I, you know, f from a child perspective, I think anyone that works with children knows that nothing really happens unless there's a good relationship between that child and those people that are trying to look after them. So I think we'll, we'll add that fifth R <laughs> from our perspective. And you've been nodding all along there, Karen. That yeah. just fits in with your experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same definition that we use. Um, and I suppose what Dan was talking about was very much how you would do it with a with an individual as well but i think what's really interesting is particularly the fourth area about resisting and being trauma reducing instead of trauma inducing i think what a lot of people are starting to understand is how unintentionally some of our services re-traumatize people so for example um, someone going to a service and having to talk about their rape to 10 different professionals and feeling like they're being pinballed around and being asked graphic details or someone not having an interpreter present and so that they can't communicate or someone being restrained uh, which can be reminiscent of past experiences of violence um, so a child being shouted at by teachers which can take them down a time hole to a time where they were shouted at a home. I think there's lots of organisations partly starting to think about what can we do to be healing and helpful and certainly not harmful. And is this where your whole notion of the trauma river comes in? A kind of pictorial, if you like, metaphor metaphor for how trauma affects me. Tell, tell me what the river is. It is related, but it's a bit different to that. So I guess just to give a bit of a sense, the, the reason I came up with the trauma river metaphor is because to me, a river is a journey. Um, you can have one drop at the beginning and one drop there. It takes a lot of drops together to form a river. It's messy. Sometimes you have to get off and go onto the riverbank. Sometimes it flows really fast. Sometimes it's quite stagnant and there's big boulders in the way. Um, and in essence, it starts with trauma sensitive, goes to trauma aware, goes to trauma informed, and it goes to trauma responsive. 
And why that's really important is because at the moment, there's a lot of excitement about trauma-informed practice, but that has also meant that it's been a bit diluted and overused and overclaimed. So there's a lot of people doing things like, oh, we put a fruit bowl in our reception area and that means we're trauma-informed, or we've changed something on our website and that means we're trauma-informed. So what I was trying to help people to see is that there are different stages and with an organisation, you are looking at where are you at the moment where do you want to get to and each one of those has a very different um, kind of ingredients within it so for example a big difference between trauma informed and trauma responsive is that it's about moving from knowing to doing and being and feeling but it's actually taking the ideas and infusing it into action into practice into culture um, and really sort of think about sustainability. So if Dan left his organisation that he's in and his other three fantastic colleagues did, would the ideas still be embedded into the fabric of the organisation? And that's the big difference between trauma-responsive and trauma-informed. Just just to add to that, I think you, people often see trauma-informed or trauma-responsive as this kind of category, which is one day you're not, one day you are. And we can do half a day's training and everything's wonderful and practice has changed. Uh, and I talked to a guy from California and he said, I'm not, not going to do the accent, but he said, it's a, it's a journey, not a destination. You know, it's, yeah. we've got a direction, we know where we're heading, but we, we'll never be able to say, right, we've, we've nailed that, we've yeah. smashed that. We should always be trying to improve and, and continue that. So where I work, you know, with the trauma-informed bit, using Karen's definition, is the relatively easy part to make people aware and to, to mm -hmm. convert them, if you like. But how you then respond, how you change practice and change the system so it's not dependent on any one person is really, really tricky and really difficult. I mean, give us an example from some of the places you visited where people are getting that right. I don't know, perhaps the Sandhill Development Centre in New Mexico? How did yeah, that work? So, so nowhere, nowhere that I visited had everything perfect. You know, we, li we live in the real world, don't we? But one of the things that I loved about Sandhill was that they'd really focused on their environment. We wanted to create a physical and psychological environment that was healing, mm -hmm. that nurtured, that made people feel safe. And after someone that's lived on the west coast of Britain all my life, this blue skied kind of, you know, just beautiful New Mexican desert just felt good to be there in itself. Mm -hmm. And it kind of was like a revelation to me about how the physical environment can actually contribute to our well-being, you know, really, really powerfully. And it wasn't just a case of putting the fruit bowl in it No, it really <laughs> wasn't. What, no, what I, other I'll give you an example. You? So... You know, I've worked in prisons, I've worked in secure care. You know, th those all come with certain kind of cultures and contexts. And one example that stands out is I walked out of a classroom and the next lesson or class for the kids was all staff and all kids to do a yoga session outside underneath this huge, beautiful tree in the dappled sunlight. And I thought that is just a wonderful example of everything this, this embodies. Yeah. It's collaborative. It uses the physical body. It's physical well-being as well as spiritual. There's a relationship there, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it just, you know, we're not that good at stuff like that in Britain, are we? Yeah. We're better now than we were four years ago, but there's still room to go. How, f how far to go? I suppose first, just to add to what Dan was saying, because I think this is something both of us probably feel quite strongly about around destination is just on the river metaphor that it goes in different sections so someone might be really far ahead in physical environment 
but really at the beginning of their journey, thinking about yeah. their recruitment and induction, or they've trained everyone in the organisation, but the leadership's really fear and shame inducing. So it's not like you're either at one, it's you might be at different stages for different parts of your organisation. And I think that's a really important bit. And everything can seem important at the same time, but yeah. it's I think it's a job of saying, right, what's going to have the most value, the most change, yeah. and what can we maybe leave till later? That's that's part of, the, yeah. part of the difficulty, really, making those decisions. And presumably, Karen, when it comes to dealing with the children involved, yeah. you, you've, you've got to look at their whole experiences, community experiences, you've said adverse cultural experiences, adverse organisationally, yes. the, whole, the whole mix. The whole gamut. And I think there's a lot of interest at the moment around adverse childhood experiences um, but I think the bit that is massively missing firstly there is far more than um, 10 adverse childhood experiences but also there are adverse cultural experiences things around racism things around the intersection of identity things around cultural humility uh, Islamophobia sexism there's adverse organizational experiences which is the trauma that you can feel working in an organization but also things like restructures and redundancies and hot desking and uh, the lack of supervision and reflective practice and then there's adverse community experiences which I think we've got in huge amounts whether that's around youth violence whether that's around poverty living in deprivation um, so I think there's you have to sort of when you're looking at adversity think of all of that and when you're working with children they're coming with the intersectionality of all of those but they're also coming with parents and families and systems and you can't work with a child without thinking about the systems that surround them. Let me give you another example, another quotation and I'm afraid another river. This time an approach summed up by Desmond Tutu. There comes a point, he said, where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find why they're falling in. How do you do that? Absolutely. So I think that's a huge quote that I use a lot in my trainings. And I think there's lots of things with that. I think partly it's about we need to be preventative and proactive. And actually, it's far easier to prevent fires than to put them out. Um, so actually, if we can create systems that are trauma reducing, I'll give you a classic example. Like if you go to the hospital and you have to have an x-ray, they often put you into a gown where you're quite exposed and you're walking around. Some people are going to feel incredibly exposed, humiliated, awkward in that gown situation. Some people are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it's okay. Some people won't even notice. It's just part of the day. If you change the procedure to be more trauma-informed, it's going to make no difference but not do any harm to the people who didn't care. It's going to make the whole experience much nicer for the people in the middle. And for the people who it's really traumatising, it's going to make the world of difference. And it's the same as in hospitals, you know, you don't get checked if you've got a bloodborne illness at the door. Um, they just assume that everyone might have an infection, so you have to wear gloves or syringes. And it's the same as if we actually just see how widespread trauma is, because trauma is invisible and often is the elephant in the room. If we just responded and made services more trauma-informed, we're not going to do harm. And presumably, Dan, at the Sandhill Development Centre in New Mexico, pe people got this. They understood it. Yeah, I think I think there's there's this thing. Something I'd add to Karen's is the question about how do we prevent? So many of the young people in residential care come from families who themselves were in the care system, yeah. the care experienced, and whose parents in turn, and 
you know, the ultimate question here is how do we break that cycle? How do we break that intergenerational trauma? Yeah. And th there's no simple solution to that. That's yeah. such a complex, complex problem that's going to require really, really complex and robust systems. But I think trauma-informed care, if we, if we can treat children or anybody else with these principles, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move somewhere to help and break that. Because help and prevent. I, I think both of you have referred somewhere to, to secondary trauma. You know, the first trauma was bad enough, but you can be reminded of it in the very organisation that's there yeah. to help you. Yeah. How do so, you avoid that? So I, I've got a soft spot for residential care workers because they do a very, very difficult job. And not only are they exposed to primary trauma, so violence and, you know, self-harm and suicide attempts, they're also exposed to all those experiences those kids have brought. So they may hear firsthand the accounts of children's traumatic experiences. They may see the system not work for these children. And because we try and find people with empathy and with you know emotions, yeah. that can really affect them. Um, and the response to that isn't to say, right, we don't talk about anything or we, do, we, we, we restrain our empathy. We just make sure there's the right support. So Karen mentioned reflective space there. We try and make sure they don't do too many shifts. We try and make sure. But all that is hard to do in practice. And uh, you know, I can talk from my organization. We're working on that, but it's, it is still hard to balance the needs of kids and the needs of staff at the yeah. same time. But I mean, presumably the staff wouldn't be there if they didn't have the skills of empathy already. You'd hope yeah. so, yeah. Um, yeah, if someone's got no empathy, maybe the, we need to think about a different role of worker. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I suppose our job, one of the key things that we've tried to introduce is to help people understand why children are doing what they're doing. So, you know, even myself included, any, anybody who's, no matter how informed you are, if you're constantly working with a person and in this little kind of closed system, you can forget all these experiences, you can forget that understanding. And so my team, one of the things we're focusing on is bringing people together and trying to remind people of why that child's doing that thing. What have they experienced? How has that affected them? Why are they behaving in the way? And ultimately, what does that mean we need to do as carers? And how important is it I think I know the answer, <laughs> but you tell me, to incorporate the child's own view of what hardships, trauma, unpleasantness that he or she has experienced. I think it's essential. So one of the, th one of the critiques, I think, of the kind of trauma framework is that some people specify what events are traumatic and what aren't. We need some kind of robustness around that concept, but I think it's ultimately up to the individual to define what their worst experiences were, what their trauma is. And if we try and force that on others our definition that can get really really problematic and potentially re-traumatized and, and replicate those experiences and do they tell you things that you didn't know Karen? oh absolutely i don't tend to use categories um, for that exact reason i think everyone's meaning making and sense making is so different and i think we've become very um firm onto having categories which can be helpful but for example if you take 10 children who have experienced sexual abuse we actually don't know what that means because for each child that's going to be utterly different what what meaning making they have around it how they make sense of it how they express it what their relationship was what their cultural context was so yeah i think absolutely same as with bullying there's a lot of oh it's a little bit of bullying or it's lots of bullying actually it's how the child makes sense of that and what it means to them um and yet in terms of in therapy absolutely you have many different discoveries throughout the journey that you find out various different life experiences so 
I, I wonder if you can just move on to a couple of the other schemes you saw. Dan, the one that made a big impression on you was the Jasper Mountains. Yes, Center. it really did, yeah. In fact, so much that we've took two, two teams from Kibble uh, there afterwards. Mm. I think nowhere's perfect, but I think what really kind of blew me away there is they'd, they'd really embodied everything. It was... It was completely authentic. It was it was hugely values driven, and they'd really taken that that knowledge of those children's lives and tried to respond it in a really in a really kind of meaningful way. So the thing the example that I always talk about is they had to build a new centre. So they asked kids in a very trauma informed way, "What kind of place would you like to live in?" And the kids said a castle. Now. We, we can understand why, right? It's safety. Plus, it's like Disneyland Castle, you know? There's the nearest reasons, but what more safe place could you live in? And so they've literally built a castle. Now, the fact they'd been so brave to do that just kind of blew my mind at the time. It, it, it's such a, a tangible, meaningful and it, expression of that. And I have to imagine, sometimes you, you hit a wall and you think, oh, is this actually meaningful? We'd make it any different. And I think of that and think, that, that keeps you going, basically. That's, that's pretty much And, of course, the two people that founded that did it as a kind of labour of love. I think they were professionals, they were clinical psychologists, but they really did this as a as a, a sort of almost a mission. Absolutely, mission is the word, yeah. They, they weren't overtly religious, I don't mean it in that sense, but they just knew exactly what they wanted to do and they did not want to compromise. I mean, it's pretty inspirational stuff, if I'm honest. And they had not only the intellectual side, the theory and the evidence, but they also had, you know, that heart. Yeah, that's the right word for it. And let's move to a, um, a scheme that you saw, Karen, the Children's Crisis Treatment Centre in Philadelphia. Yeah. What happened there and how is it a model for things here? Yeah, so again, like what Dan says, I think there's amazing elements of lots of the organisation I visited and ones which they're understandably still grappling with. Um, I think they have been, they were the first centre to implement the sanctuary model, which was created by Sandy Bloom, um, and they've been doing it for over 20 years. I think they did lots of amazing things, and they've got lots of elements, because they've got nursery school, a school, uh, mental health services, um, various foster care, they, so there's lots of different bits. But I think what I loved about what they did is, the and really inspired me, was how visual and visible lots of the values and ideas were and same as what Dan said the second you walked in there you could feel it uh, you could feel how welcoming how nurturing how caring every staff member who I spoke to every teammate who I went into you really felt the sort of nurture and care and I mean are there examples of, of good practice like that here or do you think we could really learn a lot more than we are doing um, I do think there's some beautiful examples here and I think I've been really lucky to visit lots of those places throughout the UK but we certainly need more. I think at the moment it's the exception rather than the expectation and it is best practice, it's certainly not standard practice. Um, I think everyone who I'm supporting though are very much on a journey. I wouldn't say there's anyone who I'm like, ta-da, you've got it, um, because that's not the ethos. But yeah, I think we've got some schools who are being really innovative. I think I'm working with some local authorities who are really trying to embed this in as much of a meaningful way, um, some prisons. So yeah, it w looks different to residentials. So I think there are lots of examples of best practice, but we need to do a whole lot more. Because we don't want to dwell on the negative, but are the negative things in an organisation organization that actually despite their best intentions produce bad mental health absolutely absolutely you're yeah, yeah. categorically you're yes. nodding there, yeah. 
And again, what did you bring back from Sweden that could be uh, chucked into the mix? The Margalungen organisation? Yeah, that, that was a really interesting place. I think the, the thing I took most from there was that they were pretty radical, pretty free-thinking, and they were doing things so differently, the way they delivered the psych team, the way they delivered therapy, that it just made me think we need to look at every single thing we do to ask if it can be done better. We shouldn't assume anything mm. is a given or or is is sacred that can't be touched. That was the, be- the biggest thing I took from them. I think in terms of some tangible stuff, what Dan was saying, I think that's huge and, and a classic example, you know, of things like how we assess children. Um, and there's lots of organisations who will say, well, we work with trauma all the time, but actually are you looking at everything from the signs on your building to how much they know where to find to the how the admin support greets them and looks at them to what room they're sitting in to what happens if someone gets dysregulated to the language we use to how are you thinking about if someone is transgender how they want to be identified um you know all of those different elements so it's looking at those practices and really trying to improve them and is that what you mean a little bit at least by cultural humility so one of the biggest things I took from the Winston Churchill and it's I come from a very human rights social justice background I've spent a lot of my life in Africa so it fits with my life Um, I think a lot of people have jumped on the trauma-informed bandwagon but they've left the culture side behind and you cannot talk about being trauma-informed if you don't think about culture and by culture I mean thinking about power and privilege and access but I also think about things like the intersectionality of identity so for example if you look at a CAM service um, child and adolescent mental health service if you're looking at their waiting room how trauma informed it is are you also thinking about what's that like for someone who doesn't speak English what's that like for someone who identifies as transgender if we've done it all babyish for toddlers what's that like for a teenager Um, and cultural humility the reason I use cultural humility instead of cultural competence is because I don't believe you could be competent about someone else's culture I think it's about being curious about our own lens our own bias how we look at the world our meaning making and how we think about that and it is not just race it is thinking about age and geographical location and disability and all of those areas so for me that was a huge thing in the Winston Church Fellowship is looking Um, I think they're much further ahead in America at thinking about how those things interweave. And to that degree, Dan, I suppose it's important to incorporate young people's experiences of, um, you know, the services themselves, incorporate them into the design. Yeah, yeah, that's a fundamental principle from many different approaches, but trauma-informed as well. And it's tricky, obviously, because how how do we be equal to them and involve them, you know? Quite often that turns into, can we just go and ask kids what they think and then we'll leave them. They have to be part of it. They have to be equal along it. And that that raises real challenges how you do that in practice. Mm. But it's a fundamental principle. Because, I mean, some of the smaller things, they might seem small in themselves, but they're part of it. You said, you know, there are practical things that help a child's emotions remain on an even keel. And it could be things like fidgets, spinning wheels, balance, resistance, exercise none of those individual things are going to be that powerful for, for a person and I mean kids kids with trauma are just like adults you know they're just we're all we're all human and mm. what what do we need to keep our emotions you know stable or in our sort of 
it, it, good for us and it's it's millions of things all throughout the day so it's how we're walking it's the breakfast we have it's whether the lights are horrible or whether you've been in the same room all day you know all those things can contribute to whether we can regulate our emotions and it's especially true for young people and of course it's a thing that teachers and good parents know consistency and continuity are vital absolutely right. i think i think one of the things the care system does is it struggles to provide those things. Mm. And going back to the point about re-traumatization, not providing continuity by moving children around on an unplanned basis is potentially re-traumatizing, if not primary traumatization. And that's one of the challenges as well. Just to give you a really tangible, lovely example, I was walking around um, a CAM service with some young people the other day, and they came up with three things that they noticed, which I had walked through many times and not noticed. The first was they went through the puzzles and said there were not enough, there was no puzzle that had completed pieces in any of the boxes. There was another child who says there's no signs to say about the opening or closing times of the system. How would we know if we came here in distress? And another young person said the rooms are so boring, they're just called room one, two, three. Why can't they give them good names? And that's the sort of richness that I think we young people bring that often as practitioners who use that service day in and day out we're so absorbed and soaked in it that we don't see it can't see the wood for the trees sometimes just a, it's a very summary example we asked kids yeah. to look at our and someone said yeah the room's nice but it's a shame about all the dead plants <laughs> we do, you know we're just not seeing these plants yeah. die over time and it's like wow yeah. that's that's pretty important yeah. to see and i think sometimes people think these are small things but it's that maya angelou quote people forget what you do and forget what you say but they remember how you make them feel if you can't look after a plant how are you going to look after me now, i mean it does seem that those are pretty basic things to have sort of got on top of in a lifetime of caring for it. But, but, but it's not the case. I mean, this sounds terribly depressing. I mean, should we emerge from this podcast with a feeling of depression <laughs> or <laughs> exhilaration at some of the positive stuff you've studied? I suppose a little bit of both. I think there's amazing hope. Um, I think that there's some beautiful practices going on. Um, but it do I think that we have created systems that are quite dehumanizing? Yeah. Do I think that some of the care has gone out of the care system? Yeah. Do I think that we are functioning in systems that often people are absolutely, you, you were talking before about empathy and do workers have empathy? I think some workers went into the job with a huge amount of empathy, but have been so traumatized and fill up themselves that they've had to dissociate or have crushed empathy because it's just too painful so yes I think there is amazing practice I think I'm busier than I've ever been which shows that there's a lot of interest and thirst and investment there's lots of things that we can do um, but we need to do more how I'd, much more then I'd second all that I'd say that um, you would hope that some of these things were given but sadly they're not mm -hmm. And if we, can, if we can say it again in a new way and we can use trauma-informed care as a vehicle to hammer these messages home, then that's brilliant. And it can feel quite depressing sometimes, especially when you bounce off systems that you're trying to change. But I think hope is really important. And in my organisation, on one of the walls, there is um, the original plans of, of Kibble, which is from like 1850 or whatever. And it's a huge warehouse where 60 kids used to sleep. Mm. And I see how far the care system, and, and we've come since then and think, Let's hope there's a similar level of change in the next yeah. 10, 20 years because it's definitely going in the right direction or the places that I see. Mm. 
So hope, hope's important and there's reason to have it. I, I mean, do, do you think, you know, you obviously work in this area, so the language you use of necessity has to be a bit jargony because you're speaking to the professionals. But do you think there is a danger of over-intellectualising all this, even with the phrases, that there are certain people who've spent time as foster carers who kind of know this instinctively? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, can yeah. We learn yeah. yeah. Oh, we can learn so much from mm. them. And you know, we mentioned Jasper earlier. That there's a lady you're all embarrassed by name dropping here called Judy. Who was that? She just radiated mm. nurture and love and care and time. And if everybody was like that, fantastic. Um, but going back to Karen's point, sometimes the system can can compromise that. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, and make that difficult. So if we can create systems and, and have that intellectual side that says, this is what we're looking for, let's protect that, then that, that's got to be a good thing. Let's give the final word to you, Karen. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think huge amounts of it people just have and embody and we can learn a huge amount. I think there's the other side of there are certain skills and certain frames that, for example, if you don't understand about dissociation or if you don't understand about emotional regulation, it's going to be very hard to know how to respond or how to see what that behaviour is communicating. So I think it is about being kind and compassionate and nurturing and supportive, but there is also quite clear structural and knowledge base, and I think it's finding a way to have both of those hand in hand, I guess. Okay, Karen Treisman, Dan Johnson, thank you for joining us. And thanks to you for listening to this series of podcasts sharing insights from the Mental Health Fellowships Programme. To find the full body of research produced by all Churchill Fellows, visit the Mental Health Foundation and Winston Churchill Memorial Trust websites. <laughs>